The one story that can supercharge your traffic, increase your conversions, is your customer story. I'm going to send you nine systems for finding and collecting those stories no matter where they happen. Just text GMS9 to 321-392-6692 or click the link in the show notes to get those today. In a world full of boring stories, bad videos, and marketing misinformation, one very tall man with a weird last name will use his microphone. Is this thing on? Use his video marketing knowledge. It's the red button, right? And use his friends. Please be on the show. To change that. You are listening to The Garlic Marketing Show with Ian. What? No, that's how you pronounce it. Well, if you say so, your host, Ian Garlic. Welcome to another episode of the Garlic Marketing Show. And I'm honored not only to have an incredible guest, but when I tell you about him, you're going to be like, yeah, you're making some of that stuff up. Uh, he's been um, he's been in motion pictures. He's been on Sex in the City. Uh, I think like 20 other TV shows. No, he's been on a couple. And in his spare time, he's written six best-selling books. And I one of my favorite things is the event he runs called Heroic Public Speaking, which uh, we'll talk a little bit about. Michael Port, thank you so much for being on the show. You are welcome, my friend. Oh uh, man, you, you know you're you're my the first guest I can honestly say has a better voice than me. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's very kind, but I was actually going to mention your voice. You have an outstanding voice for radio. Oh, thank you. I have a face for radio too. <laughs> I, I was going to say that's the next joke in there, but I. I got you to I beat you to it. Uh, Michael, you know, first of all, I, I, I'm going to do a little more gushing on you because not only do you run Heroic Public Speaking, but, you know, Book Yourself Solid, amazing book. I think everyone should read if they're doing any type of outside sales, if they have a small business. Um, you know, you're a prolific writer. You've written awesome books and steal your uh, steal the show is your latest book on speaking. And I have to tell you just a, a little testimonial. I wrote, I read this book like last and I've done a lot of speaking and I, I read this book and some of the things I learned in there, I use right away. And the next speaking engagement I had, which was a, a sell from the stage type one, I did five figures. I did my, I blew it out of the water. And a lot of that was because of that book. So, you know, if anyone's doing any type of public speaking, that's the book you got to read. And the book's not, and the book's not even about selling from the stage. No, it's but, not. But what, but what you did is, is you were best in class when you were up there, which made you so compelling, and you offered so much value that people said, "I, I have to buy from this guy." Oh yeah, and yeah. I, I actually had someone tell me that I was a better public speaker than Tony Robbins, and it's just because yeah. I told, because I told better stories, I told yeah. good stories, and I crafted good stories. Um, you're almost, you're almost as tall as he is. <laughs> I know. I know. Everyone's always surprised when they see me. They're like, you're a lot taller. You're a giant man. You're like <laughs> six, four or something crazy like that. Uh, yeah. I'm six, six. Uh, that's, uh, really? yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'm a big wow. guy. Um, that's incredibly cool. So, you know, you're, I think one of the most important things about your speaking technique is that it's really not about public speaking. 
And can you tell me a little bit about like your philosophy on presentation? Because I think this is so important for every single person to know. Sure. Well, Shakespeare said it best. He said that all the world's a stage. And I think I recognized that when I was very young. Now, the, the thing that concerns people often when we start to talk about this topic is that that they think performance is phony, fake, inauthentic. Mm-hmm. But in fact, the most extraordinary performers are the most honest performers. They're the performers that connect with you emotionally, personally, and they do that because they are open. They let you in and they're interested in you. And if you think about life, life is filled with lots of high stakes situations Hmm. and how we perform during those high stakes situations will determine the quality of our life. So when the spotlight's on us, if we, if we fall flat, then, you know, we don't, we don't play a very big game in life, but when the spotlight's on us and we shine, well, then the world is ours. You know, how do you deal with the high pressure of the high stakes situation? And what I know is that an actor's technique, acting techniques can help you during those kinds of high stakes situations, because the way you manage your body, the way you manage your breath, the way you manage your emotions, the way you connect with other people physically, all of these acting techniques that can help improve the way you behave in those types of situations, well, that's what's going to you know, have a major effect on your life. For example, uh, I had someone come to the house yesterday. Uh, I won't mention his name because what he was working on was pretty personal. You would know who he is. He's sold probably three and a half million books. Wow. And he wanted to come and work on a speech, but he was really using the speech as an opportunity to explore different ways of being for himself. He, fe- he was feeling that at this stage in his life, he needed to do a better job of, of connecting with people so that they, they, they didn't feel on guard with him. And so that he wasn't abrasive. And that was really quite remarkable and very impressive to me that at this stage in his career, he felt like he wanted to keep working on himself in that way. And he used the speech as an opportunity to move forward in those particular areas. So we play roles all the time. We play different roles all the time in life. You know, your one role as a father, you play another role with your friends from high school, you play another role in your work, you play another role with your, uh, people you go play tennis with, you know, it's always you and hopefully, you know, your values stay consistent across those roles. But if we only play one role and we only have one way of being, and we can't adapt to the situations that we're in and the people that we're with, then we tend to stay constrained. We tend to stay in a small disclosive space, but if we are adaptable, if we're flexible, well, then we can move in and out of lots of different circles, different cultures, different communities, and as a result, can be a better leader because people are more comfortable with us. Yeah. Oh. It, 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 you just summed it all up so well that I think it's crucial for everyone to understand that 
you know, if if you want to be in, in in any way improve your life, you have to shape and improve the life of others. You have to be able to shape the world around you and adapt to those situations. And yeah. and your personal presentation is the the best place to do that. I like uh, the idea. I like the idea of being a chameleon. And and people think that well, God, that me again. Once that's fake, you know, you got to be who you are. You know, you can't be a chameleon. But think about a chameleon. A chameleon is is green when it's on a green leaf. It turns red when it's on a red leaf. So it's not pretending to turn green. It actually turns green. And it's not pretending to turn red. It actually turns red. It is absolutely authentic. And the ability to adapt and be comfortable playing different roles is essential. For example, if you are a drill sergeant, the drill sergeant, when he's trying to train troops, is going to have one particular way of being. But if he comes home and has three daughters and can only communicate with those young girls the way that he communicates with his troops, he may have a strained relationship with his daughters. He's going to need to adapt and play a different role at home. And, and for example, you know, on the other side, take Herb Brooks. Herb Brooks was a hockey coach and he was the hockey coach of the 1980 U.S. men's Olympic hockey team. And when he was given this job, he didn't have access to professional players at that time. In hockey, in the Olympics at that time, it was just amateur players. And so these were, these were guys that were going into college or in college or just coming out of college, but they weren't pros. And when he took over, he knew that the only way they could be successful is that they could beat the Russian team. Now, the Russian team... They were all your, you would have been the smallest guy in the Russian team. <laughs> These guys would take steroids. They were mean, nasty. They were killers. They had been winning for decades. Nobody could touch the Russians. And his goal was to beat this Russian team. So when he picked his team, he was, he picked kids that were rivals because they had been playing against each other in college. And he knew he had to somehow bring this team together. But when he was a coach in college, he was known as a pretty affable coach. People liked him and he had good relationships with his players. But when he took over this team, he decided to play a completely different role. He said, I'm not going to be that same type of coach. I am going to be the coach that they hate so much that they hate me more than they hate each other. Because if they hate me more than they hate each other, then they'll come together. They need a common enemy. So he told him, I'm not going to be your friend. You want a friend? You go to my assistant coach. But he worked these guys so hard. They would be, they puke after every single practice. He was relentless. Nobody had ever seen, uh, you know, a Olympic hockey team work their, his players this hard. And he also needed them to be prepared, you know, for what was to come. So he played this role that wasn't necessarily an easy role to play because it means your team, you know, talks about you behind your back. Your team looks at you, you know, like they want to kill you and you get questioned the whole time because of your particular behavior. People saying, what are you doing? You can't, these are the wrong players you're picking. The way you're treating them is terrible, et cetera, et cetera. But he knew what he wanted to do. So he was focused on, and this is key results rather than approval. 
And one of the reasons that folks have trouble as performers, take public speaking, uh, take uh, their role inside, uh, uh, you know, an office somewhere, or even in their, you know, interpersonal relationships is because their primary goal, even if they don't realize it, is going for approval. They base their actions on approval. So if I was thinking, you know, it's like if every time you asked me a question, I was thinking, like, what, what does everybody want to hear? You know, what's going to make them like me? What, what are the, what, what's the right thing in this situation? Well, I'm going to be a mess because my whole world is going to be focused on getting people to like me. And that is a, a really very dangerous uh, way of being because what we should be doing is focusing on results. For example, one, years ago, one of my clients called me up and she was absolutely petrified because she had got an opportunity to be interviewed on Good Morning America. Now, she was working to get this opportunity for six months. <laughs> so now she wanted this. She was pitching. She was going after it. She had a new book coming out. And this was, you know, this was like the, you know, cherry on top of, of, of the whole entire, you know, publicity process. So then she gets it and she's freaking out. Oh, I don't know what I was thinking. You know, I don't want to do this because she gets nervous. Why? She says to me, Michael, you got to tell me, how can I be good? I said, well, you cannot be good. Not possible. <laughs> now, I think she fell off the chair. I said, no, it's not that you're not good. It's not that. But you can't go into this kind of situation and try to be good. The only thing you can do is try to be helpful. And if you're helpful, then you will be effective. And if you're effective, people say, oh, yeah, she was really good. So the way that people describe their experience with you is not the same as what you should be trying to accomplish. You should be going for the results. So here, when you ask me questions, I just think about what, what do I think can, will be helpful? Now, it doesn't mean every single thing I say will be helpful. Uh, sometimes people will go, oh, no, nah, I don't get that. Or, oh, nah, that doesn't really mean anything to me. Or they'll say, wow, that that's really helpful. I get that. That's something I should think about. Hmm, I hadn't thought about that before. Huh, I could use that. And then afterwards they go like, that was a great interview. I really like that. But it's all because you're trying to produce results by being helpful, not trying to be good or trying to be liked. Because frankly, you know, I don't really care if the people who are listening like me. What I care about is them being able to accomplish their goals as it relates to my area of expertise. Oh, man, that's – everything you're saying is it, it, so important for people to realize when they think of – because. Uh, well, I understand why you call it heroic public speaking, your event, um, which is coming up in October. And are there, just on a side note, are there any spots available if anyone's interested? Yeah, I think about 15. Okay, so heroicpublicspeaking.com, correct? Uh, yeah, it, for the live event, it's heroicpublicspeaking.com forward slash live, L I V E. Okay, awesome. So, I mean, what. I think most people have gone to speaking classes and they've gone to, you know, Toastmasters, et cetera, and nothing against those things, but this is a different way of thinking. It's a different way of being, which I think is crucial to people. Like, And what you just said about ego, I think is a big thing holding most people back is that they're, they're looking for approval versus results. It stops them from doing great marketing. It stops them from changing the world. Because they're worried about people liking them, um, and, and how do you, how 
do you recommend that people keep pushing past that? You know, when they get on stage, how do they keep pushing past it? Because it, you get stage fright, you get scared, and you sure. want everyone to like you. Yeah. Well, people often ask about overcoming stage fright. Even people who are, uh, you know, good speakers who want to speak more, they often get uh, some stage fright. Or I don't really. Uh, I, I still have yet to understand how someone says, "No, never, ever, ever, never, ever, ever, ever get nervous." Nope, not me. Never. <laughs> that's pretty that's pretty impressive there's a few people i think who are at that stage i mean i think you know tony robbins uh, we mentioned you know you're almost his size uh, <laughs> you know he's much bigger teeth than you do but he actually no i've seen your teeth they're pretty big he, <laughs> he when he i saw him in an interview when he was asked he's like do you ever get nervous he just looked at the interviewer smiled and said no <laughs> yeah <laughs> and there, you you get to the point where you do feel very very comfortable up there, no doubt. But the the primary re- – well, there's two primary reasons that people get nervous about presenting themselves in front of others. Number one, because they're afraid of rejection. When you are uh, presenting yourself in front of other people, they they feel they can judge you. Why? Because that's how the dynamic is set up. That's how it's always been. There is a – there's a dynamic that is created when somebody is standing in front of a group of people talking and the other people are sitting and listening. The people who are sitting and listening feel that they get to judge the person who's saying it and what they're saying. So that's natural. That's normal. Now, of course, they want you to succeed because they want to have a good time when they're there and they want to get value from it. They don't want you to fail. But nonetheless, we're afraid of getting rejected. Perfectly normal. I don't like getting rejected either. Number two... We also get very nervous because we're often not prepared. And this is critical. And as you know, excuse me, in our work, we spend a significant amount of time teaching people how to rehearse. Because if you were not a professional actor like we were, my wife uh, has her master's from Yale School of Drama and I have my master's from uh, the NYU graduate acting program. You wouldn't know how to rehearse. I mean, we, this is what we did. This is what we trained in. We worked on this every single day for years and years and years. But you weren't taught how to rehearse when you went to high school or college for engineering or if you got an MBA. It's just not part of your training. So what happens is you go into a presentation having put together an outline. Maybe you put some slides together. Uh, you went through it your head in your head a few times. Maybe kind of talked – you know, mumbled through it out loud once or twice. And then you went and, you know, you go and give it to an audience really for the first time. And, and of course you're going to be nervous because you don't feel ready. You don't feel prepared. But when you are incredibly well prepared, so well prepared that you know what you're doing before you do it, well, then you're a lot more comfortable because you know how to do it. When we're when we when we don't know how to do something, we tend to get very nervous. Like, you know, the first time I ever drove a big boat, I was really damn nervous. The second time I was nervous. The third time, you know, when you're trying to dock a boat that weighs fifty five thousand pounds and is sixty feet long, you know, in the at the <laughs> beginning, it's a little anxiety provoking uh, because you know boats don't have brakes. People don't realize that you can't, <laughs> you can't just say, "Oh, I'm going to stop put on the brakes," and, and it won't move. The boat is moving all the time, even when it's tied up, it's still moving. So, but after you've done it hundreds, if not thousands of times, well, 
you know, you feel like you have a certain you know, level of mastery and you're good to go. So that's, that's one part that the, the, the lack of rehearsal is a big problem. But on the flip side, what happens is people say, well, look, Michael, I've tried rehearsal and it doesn't work. I don't like it because it makes me stiff. Well, I get that because what's happened often more likely than not is they tried a little bit of rehearsal. Not a lot of rehearsal, but a little bit. And when you do just a little bit of rehearsal, your performance often suffers because you feel like you would have been better if you just went out there and were off the cuff because you would have been quick and on your feet uh, and in the moment. And that's probably true. You probably would have been better than having done just a little bit of rehearsal because what, what happens when you do just a little bit of rehearsal is when you're performing – you're trying to recall what you did in rehearsal and you're trying to remember what you're supposed to do. And as a result, you're not in the moment, you're in the past. And when you're performing, you need to be in the moment. So you feel stiff, you feel slow, you feel staged. And as a result, you go, that rehearsal doesn't work. So I'm just going to go wing it. But you will always be better if you are fully rehearsed than if you wing it. This, you know, look, people who have the gift for the gab, who are quick on their feet and are subject matter experts uh, feel like they can go out there and wing it because they've been getting away with it. But for the most part in the speaking industry, the bar is actually pretty low. Bar is not that high. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, it's not like on Broadway where the bar is pretty high. And so you show me one actor in a Broadway show that is winging it. <laughs> <laughs> you should be you should be Barbara Streisand doing a, a, a you know a performance a, a solo performance of fifteen songs, and you are going to show me a woman that has rehearsed for hundreds and hundreds of hours on that material, so she knows it so well that before she sings she can forget about everything she did and she can stay in the moment and allow it to come to her. That's a performer. And so if you're very serious about speaking, then more reverence for the process is going to make you a better speaker. Now, if the speech you have to give is not a high stakes speech, you know, then don't worry about it. You know, I'm going to go give a speech this weekend on Saturday for uh, my mother's charity organization. And my speech is not going to make or break this charity. It's not a fundraiser. Uh, it's something I'm doing for them, of course, complimentary and for a small group of people. And I'm bringing in some of my students actually who have expertise. I'm bringing in a, a doctor who also does ventriloquism, which is <laughs> uh, and I'm bringing a nutritionist who who specializes in eating for uh, when you have um, different diseases like cancer. And I'm not going to spend the kind of time rehearsing that I would if it was Coca-Cola's annual event where they paid me $35,000 to do an hour speech for 15,000 people. It's a totally different dynamic. So we put in the amount of time that is appropriate for the stakes of that particular given situation. Yeah. I mean, uh, and I, I, that's a very good point on a side note though. You know, I, th I think one of the things to get across to people is even if you don't plan on being a public speaker, 
having the skill set is so crucial to anything else you do. And then when you have that once in a while, that wedding toast, and you can blow them out of the water. And that's why I love seeing those stories. So I'm in the Heroic Public Speaking Facebook group, and seeing those stories, not just of the people obviously getting the high-stakes speeches, but of them giving the best wedding toast ever. Yeah. And, and and how much that changes your life and a memory of a moment that's so crucial in so many people's lives. Uh, how invaluable is that? I remember a woman posted recently that she had just gotten married and she worked on her vows using the techniques that we teach. And she said before heroic public speaking, if I had gotten married, there's no way I would have been able to get through my vows without breaking down into a puddle of snot was actually the word she used. <laughs> she said I would have been bawling so much I wouldn't be able to get through it. But because of my training, I was able to get through it. And I, of course, was emotionally connected and there were tears you know, in my eyes. But I was able to do the vows the way that I wanted to, the way I wanted to do them for my husband. And that's, that's amazing to me. That's what's really powerful. If you go in for a job interview, that's a performance. If you meet your future in-laws for the first time, there's an element of performance there too. You're probably pretty nervous. A first date is a performance. A negotiation is a performance. A sales pitch is a performance. Mm -hmm. All of these interactions have elements of performance. If you want somebody to get say, if you want somebody to say yes to what you are asking of them, you are, and bear with me for a second here, you are in effect manipulating them. Now, mm -hmm. when people hear, hear the word manipulation, they think, well, that's a negative thing. But I use it just to you know, get your hair to stand up on the back of your neck for a second. To be honest, if you think about the way you go through your day, you're trying to get people to do what you want, that, what you want them to do. That's what we do all day long. We get up. I got to get my kids to do what I want them to do so that they get the right food in them. They get dressed on time. They make sure they brush their teeth and they get to school uh, when they're supposed to get to school. All of that is I've got to choose different tactics to get them to do it. Well, there's a manipulation associated with that. Is it negative? No, it's positive. It's for them. Uh, you know, if uh, when I sit down with my team and I'm having a meeting about, you know, the event that's coming up or something we're working on, I have got to get them to want to say yes to what I'm asking of them. I've got to get them to buy in. I've got to get them excited about these things. Uh, you know, I've got to try every single tactic I possibly can to move them in the direction that I want them to go. If I'm having a conversation with a, a potential sponsor for the event and I'm having a number of those conversations at present, I've got to get them to say yes if I think they're going to be a great sponsor. Well, how do I do that? I try all the different tactics I can think of to demonstrate the value that they're going to get. You know, and this goes on and on and on and on. Even when you call up Verizon because you're having a problem with your phone, you try whatever tactic you can to get what you want. And when you can't control yourself and the way you behave and you only have one way of being, you tend not to get what you want. Yes. It, you, it, don't, you, you don't choose the right tactics. Yep. And I think that that whole manipulation, I've had this conversation on the show a lot and I tell people this. If you're unhappy with the way the world is, if you're unhappy about if if you want to support a charity, if you want to, you know, if you're like I'm an environmentalist, if you want to make any change, you have to manipulate people because other people are manipulating them for the worse. And if you want to make positive change, manipulation has to happen and being in control of yourself is the place you got to start.
I mean, people like to use different words, you know, persuasion, uh, inspiration, you know, mm-hmm. but they're all ultimately the same thing. You're trying to get people to do what you want. Exactly. So here's an acting technique that demonstrates how you can use this in your real life. So when an actor is developing a character, the way that they show the audience who that person is, is by what the character does. You can't indicate, I mean, you can't tell people, oh, this is who I am. Like you could say you're an environmentalist, but like I could say, oh, I'm an environmentalist, but you know, my boat burns 50 gallons of diesel fuel an hour, an hour. You know, that's I'm like, okay, what exactly kind of environmentalist you are? I'm like, well, I'm a, I'm a environmentalist, like, you know, partially, <laughs> you can start breaking down that argument. So I could tell you anything, but what I tell you doesn't mean anything. What I do is what tells the world who I am. So when you're developing a character, you are always choosing actions, I am going to do this to create this effect because I want to get this from the other character in the play or the film or TV show, whatever you're working in. And of course, the writer has put obstacles in front of your way and your job is to fight through those obstacles to get what you want. And that creates conflict. And that's interesting for people to watch. The world puts obstacles in front of your way every single day. People are in your way every single day. And we're choosing different tactics to try to move through them. And so if we get really clear on our objectives, the way that an actor does when they're developing a character, if we get really clear on our our objectives, then we can choose the kind of tactics we want to use to achieve those objectives. And there are going to be lots of obstacles put in our way. But the way that we go after our objective is going to determine whether or not we get that objective. So, of course, the only difference is in real life, we want to try to reduce that conflict, not increase it. As an actor, you're trying to increase conflict because it's more exciting to an audience. We do the opposite. But the same rule applies. You know, what's your super objective? You know, what is the big thing that you're going after? What are your sub objectives? What tactics are you using to accomplish that? And then the way that you behave tells the world who you are. Oh, so, so important. But, you know, pe- people often ask us, uh, people often ask us what our style is at Heroic Public Speaking. You know, like, what's the style of speaking? My... My goal is, is for my hope, my hope is that nobody ever looks at one of our students and, you know, we train, you know, people who are new and we train the top A-listers in the industry. I don't want anyone to ever look at one of our students go, oh yeah, that's a, that's a heroic public speaking trained performer. That's a Michael Port performer. That's an Amy Port performer because the craft the technique should be invisible. When I went to, so our style is no style. The way Bruce Lee said that his style was no style. That's the same thing. Because there isn't one way to do really anything when it comes to an artistic endeavor. And any type of performance is artistic. So there's no formula that if you always stick to this formula, it's going to work out perfectly. It doesn't really work like that. When I went to graduate school and when Amy went to graduate school, the two programs we went to are arguably two of the best in the world. And people would ask us the same question. Well, what is the style that they teach you? Because people have heard of well, Stanislavski and, you know, mm-hmm. uh, Eisner, and they've heard of different styles. And we were not taught a style. There was no style that we were taught. And as a result, I think it produced a lot of very unique actors, just like we produce, produce a lot of very unique 
public speakers, each one is different. We're amplifying the individual style. We're trying to find what is unique about that person and give them the tools to express that. What we were taught, however, same thing we teach our speakers, is we were taught how to be more open. Because the more open you are as a performer, the more available you are emotionally and intellectually, the better job you can do of connecting with an audience. But when you protect yourself, wrap yourself up in layers of persona, when you have any kind of armor on, uh, any kind of chip on your shoulder as a performer, you tend to disconnect or distance yourself from an audience. So that's where the honesty is so important. However, there's people, we can go way too far with this idea of honesty and authenticity on stage as well. So here's the flip side of it. You know, authenticity is the buzzword of, I don't know, 2015, 16, and probably will be into 17. Then it'll start to be something else. But authenticity is the big buzzword. But authenticity can often be problematic. Seriously. We, mm-hmm. If we were always authentic everywhere we went, we would say some things that might be pretty unkind that were pretty unnecessary to say. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So when you go on stage, you are not saying everything that's in your mind. You're not, you're not behave. Look, is there are times, look, if, if, you know, if you're a professional speaker, there are days when you have, you know, crappy days and you really would just love to be at home, but you've got to go give a speech. So you've got to be on your best. You don't walk on stage where, listen, I'm really actually kind of pissed that I'm here. <laughs> I'd love to go home. I'm just going to get really through this really fast. Um, I mean, yeah, I know you guys paid me a lot of money, but you know, I don't really care. So, you know what? You just don't do that. You would not do that. So you don't say everything that comes to your mind. You're not a hundred percent authentic all the time. And thank God that you're not. So recognize that we choose how we want people to see us. So I think we can choose wisely. Mm-hmm. I think we can make strong choices. And performers make strong choices. You know, I, I write in Steal the Show a lot about making choice because the bigger your choices, the clearer your choices, the earlier and more often that you choose, the more people will want to play with you. You know, I'm interested in people who make choices. I, 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 I'm not that interested in people who perseverate, who hesitate, who deliberate to such a degree that not a lot happens. Yes. When you're a performer, you got to make strong choices, big choices. And that is what is often compelling to the audience because it raises the stakes. Just like in your personal life, the bigger your choices are, the, the higher the stakes are. And, you know, that's an acting technique. And you can get comfortable with making those big choices if you see yourself as a performer, because you can step into the role that you need to play in order to affect that choice and produce the kind of results that you want. Yeah. Oh, and, you know, I think to that choice, you know, and being authentic, uh, one of the most important things, too, is recognizing your audience. Who is your audience? And you don't have to make them happy, like you were saying before. You don't have to go for their approval, but you have to give them the the, the part of your authenticity that's the most valuable to them. That's and exactly I- right. You know, it's interesting. It's interesting, Ian. Sometimes 
you know, look, even the title of my, my book has, uh, you know, something about getting a standing ovation in it. But sometimes the, the person who gets the standing ovation at the event is not always the most effective. They may have been the most entertaining or, or had the saddest story uh, or made the audience cry the most, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they were as effective as a speaker for that audience as it relates to what the, say, conference organizers wanted to create. You know, sometimes the one who pushes the most buttons is the one who's most effective. But, you know, people didn't jump up at the end and 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 clap and clap and clap, say, thank you so much for making me feel so uncomfortable. Um, <laughs> I Now I know I have to do that thing that I didn't want to do, but oh, thank you so much. You know, people don't necessarily do that. They kind of sit there at the end. They're like, all right, all right. I hear you. Fuck. I hear you, you know? <laughs> and, uh, you know, and then they're, uh, you know, and then they maybe will go and do something about it. And that person may have been the most effective. Now we're trying, we're not trying to provoke people just to provoke them. That doesn't, you know, that doesn't do any good. But sometimes if we are in service of that audience, we may be provoking. Again, it's one of the reasons I love using public speaking training as a tool for personal development, even if you never were, you know, plan on going out and giving a lot of speeches because you cannot hide when you're giving a speech. That's why it's scary. You cannot hide in front of an audience. They see you. There was a, there was a, an, uh, an old world, um, actress who said acting is like standing in front of an audience naked and turning around very slowly. And public speaking is the same thing. The only difference is that sometimes actors actually have to be naked. It's written into the script, but you don't have to be naked. In fact, it's not a good idea to be naked when you're giving speeches in a business environment, but it feels like that. And that's what can be scary, but that's actually where the magic is. That's where the beauty is. That's where you get to explore you know, who you really are and what you're really capable of. Oh, yeah, so true. And I think that's, you know, this is a great place. I had so much else I want to talk to you about, but I know you're limited on time. Uh, but it, it just to the point that there's, of course, heroic public speaking, the event is great for speakers, but I think this is great for anyone that pretty much anyone. I, I love it. I love everything it does. But anyone that really wants to become a great business person, really wants to affect change, and really wants to make their all-around marketing better, heroic public speaking is amazing. And I, I want to leave on, on one other story. I appreciate you being on here. But I have to tell you that I was in one of the – I was surprised by everything because I really didn't pay attention to the agenda. I was like, okay, this is a bunch of cool people I like and I haven't seen in a while. I'm going to heroic public speaking. And I went there and I was surprised by the agenda. But then the the when you brought someone on stage, and I, I won't call their name, but they they were not that good of a speaker. And in the course of like 20 minutes, it was like a friggin' magic show. It, <laughs> what, what you did, I was like, was this staged? Because it was yeah. like, it, he was completely different as a person, as a speaker in a few minutes. And, I, and for anyone that thinks they can't do it, I, this is the event that will make you believe that you can. Uh, well, that's, you know, it's, it's, I appreciate that. Thank you. It's not the first time that I've heard the word magic used to describe those kind of coaching sessions. And it's really not magic. It's all technique based, 
and you know, we as actors, when we'd work with directors or high level acting teachers back in the day, we were used to that happening. That's the performer's job is to transform. But most people who've not been, who've not had the kind of um, background that we have had, have never, have never seen that kind of transformation in, you know, a regular person. It's, it's unusual. The fact that you said you thought it was stage is brilliant because that's, that's the greatest compliment, compliment I can get in the world. You know, Jordan Harbinger, of course, Yeah, he's the host of Art of Charm. And Jordan, if you ever listen to his show, you know, he's, he's a pretty cynical guy. He doesn't just buy into what everybody, anything anybody says, he'll push you and make sure you can really back up what you have to say. And he came to Heroic Public Speaking Live in the very first one we ever did. And he, I didn't really know him. I, I was on his show once a while before that, but he's, he wanted to work on his speaking. So he came to the event. I thought that was pretty cool. And he told me afterwards, he said, listen, I got to tell you. When you, I saw you do that coaching with that first person, I was like, I can't believe I just came to this event. This is totally BS. That was totally staged. There is no way that someone could be that bad and then get that good that fast. Impossible. <laughs> and he's like, well, I, you know, he's like, I'm already here. So whatever, I'll just stay for a while. You know, I'm sure I'll have some nice conversations with people. But then he saw me do it again. And then he saw Amy do it. And they saw me do it again. He goes, there's no way they could stage all this. This is actually happening. He was just completely befuddled by it because he had been to, he said something like 12 different uh, you know, public speaking uh, trainings before because it's something that he's so interested in. And because even as a host, you know, you would think, well, what does a host of a, you know, big podcast need public speaking training for? Because he said, I didn't know what to do when I got on stage. You know, what do I do with my body? And <laughs> he's like, I, just, I can have a conversation, but that's very different than being on stage. So he joined our graduate uh, school after that, which is a long, intensive training program, more like a conservatory, because you can get a lot in a couple of days. But if you want to work on a speech, you need a fair amount of time to develop the content, to rehearse, get it ready to perform, et cetera. Uh, and, uh, you know, he's been um, he's been a great student ever since. But, yeah, you are not the first person to use the word magic and to go. That's not that didn't just happen. I know. I mean, I, I knew it, I knew it wasn't, but it was like, there's that instant where you're like, no. And knowing you, I know it wasn't staged. So I was like, okay. And I'm like, that's amazing. <laughs> but that, that's a fun goal to have, like to get everybody in the audience to go, that was staged. No way. Impossible. <laughs> I mean, that alone, seeing that is worth going there. Plus then like last time there was a sword swallower, which was kind of, Interesting too. <laughs> have uh, another act that will be just as fun, not as scary, but uh, very funny. And I, I can't tell you what it is yet, but uh, but it's it's going to be unique for sure. I, I suggest anyone. It's in Fort Lauderdale, uh, right around Halloween. HeroicPublicSpeaking dot com slash live. Check it out. It's definitely worth it. Um, probably one of the best investments you can make into your business and your personal life. Uh, Michael, thank you so much for being on. Thanks for being hey, awesome. My pleasure. You're the best, man. Huge, huge, mad respect for you and really appreciate the work you do. Oh, thank you. And vice versa. Uh, all right. N enough bromance. Uh, thank you all for listening. I'm very, very jealous of your height. Let me just put that <laughs> Well, thank you all for listening to the Garlic Marketing Show and taking Michael and I on your journey. Uh, this has been I and Garlic, and you have a great day. That's it for the Garlic Marketing Show. 
If you want to get the inside scoop and the latest techniques, make sure to follow Ian Garlic on Facebook. 